Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right. Hey, we're halfway through this module, um, and we come to Numbers this week. If you think Numbers is a, is a boring book, I don't believe you've ever read it. The name is, I don't want to say misleading, it is full of numbers. There are long lists of names and numbers here in this book. There are two censuses included, one's at the very beginning, so right from the get-go the book is numbers. I get that. But in a way it's misleading because that makes you think it's going to be tedious or boring. Um, But it's not. I don't think it is. Just objectively speaking, there are some very interesting stories in Numbers. This is the account, basically this is the account of God's people in the wilderness. In fact, the Hebrew name for the book means in the wilderness. It's not, Numbers is more of, that's how the Western church has always had it in their, in their Bibles, but the Hebrew name for this book, because this is part of the Pentateuch, this is the most important section of you know, God's revealed word to, to Israel, to Jews. Their name for it means in the wilderness. So this is a story of God's people in the wilderness. Time-wise, it does overlap some with Leviticus. Remember Leviticus um, covered, what, seven weeks or so, I think we said. Seven weeks from the completion of the tabernacle until its first dismantling. So this book covers all the wilderness years. So there's a little bit of overlap, but a lot of new material, tons of new material, and really a different purpose in mind. So Leviticus stood alone. It was the story of the Levites, worship and um, liturgy, all of that sort of thing. This is, has a completely different purpose. Um, this historical record teaches Christians about how to pass through this life with its sin and trials, with our repeated failures, with all the challenges, but experiencing God's faithfulness along the way. That's sort of a summary statement. That's my summary statement of the book. All right. There's our map again. You guys have a QR code if you want to keep looking at that. But we're moving, you know, now we're definitely past this point here. We're solidly in this area here. I don't have anything else to say about the timeline today though. All right, here's the outline. Like I said, I like to keep an outline simple and I have each week I have a goal for what I want us to do in terms of putting together, it's usually a timeline. This week it's a timeline. I want us to to think of this book. This is not evenly divided, one, two, and three. They don't take up equal um, number of chapters in the book. But I want us to think of the wilderness years as falling into one of these three brackets, okay? Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, we're going to talk a lot about this place today. Remember last week we ended in Sinai, the people had gone into Sinai. So that's the first one. The second one, wilderness wandering. And third, on the verge of going into the promised land. If you're like me... I say it every week, I grew up in church, but I had all kinds of misunderstandings and I was so slow to put pieces together. 
that's my fault for not paying enough attention in Sunday school and Bible class and so forth, but maybe you've done that too. I always tended to think of the wilderness wandering as an aimless 40 years, and, and I think of all the stories that I know from, from Numbers and from Exodus as being kind of evenly spaced out. So they're just wandering around, then this happens, then this happens. That's not at all the case. This, what we covered last week was huge, that southward trek down to Sinai. Then this, this week, this part is extremely important. And this part is extremely important. The wandering, we tend to think of the whole thing as just all this wandering. That's really, that's really not it. So let's start to step through this, and I think that will make more sense. Okay. Is that too washed out for you guys to see? I'm, I'm planning to use this map pretty extensively, so I'm hoping you can see it. If not, it's too late. I can't fix it. But. Okay. I said a moment ago, the book begins with the census. It, it records the number of men 20 years old and above. Basically, it's recording the number of men who are capable of military service. That census, I didn't write down the number, but the census suggests an estimated total population of about 2 million. Men, women, children, 2 million. It's a big group. Okay? The opening chapters provide information about the composition of those numbers, you know, how many in each tribe, that sort of thing. It's, its purpose seems to be to record the numerical strength of the Israelites as an army. Okay, because we're going at the beginning from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. I guess I'll give you a hint at one of the main points I have. The, this beginning trip, this first trip, is supposed to lead to the conquest of Canaan. The 40 years of wandering, was that's not how it was supposed to go, right? That's another one of those things that I didn't really understand put together until I was an adult. But um, they're recording the numerical strength for the purposes of an army for the conquest of Canaan. That, I believe, is the, is the main purpose of that census at the beginning. Um, also at the beginning, distinct places are assigned to each tribe when they're camped and when they're, when they're moving. In camp, the, the tabernacle is always in the center. Okay, so remember we had our diagram of the tabernacle. So when they're camped, this was to be the layout. The tabernacle was always central. I wonder how much area this whole thing took up. I mean, two million people. So I'm sure this isn't drawn to scale anywhere near scale. But the idea is the tabernacle is central. That's, that's their center of worship. So that makes sense. And then you have 12 tribes, three on each side of it. That's when they're camped. When they're moving, it was... Then Levites, so six tribes, Levites, six tribes. So again, when they're on the move, 
the tabernacle is central. They weren't picking it up like an Amish barn moving project. They took it apart and everything, and they have it in bags and, and whatever. But the Levites were in the center, six tribes ahead, six tribes behind. So the tabernacle is always central. At the beginning, there are lots of other laws mingled in here too. This is where we have laws about quarantine, the vow of the Nazarite, family laws, things that affected families, like how to deal with infidelity, that sort of thing. Um, and God provides guidance. We cover this in Exodus, but here again, it's reiterated. In the daytime, they would have the pillar of cloud to guide them. At night, it was a pillar of fire, but it both represented God's guiding presence. There were two silver trumpets that were made. God commanded that the silver trumpets be made so that they could blow signals and the different sounds indicated different messages. So there was probably a sound for start packing up camp. There's this, you know, all these different signals from the trumpets. Okay, they've been, you'll remember from before, to, uh, they've been in the wilderness for 14 months when they receive instruction to leave Sinai. So they, they crossed, we think they crossed right about here, out of Egypt, and then they headed south, right? And right here, was Mount Sinai. So they had gone south, and this didn't take a really long time, but they did camp at Mount Sinai for a long time. God gave the law. We have all those stories from before. Um, they had been camped there for almost a year. So then the trumpets sound, they tear down camp, the Levites take apart the tabernacle, all the paraphernalia for worship, and two million people are moving from here. Okay, and they head north. So they're going this direction. This is wilderness, okay? This is, this is a modern Google map. I, didn't, I, I wanted to, to pull a modern day map so that you would get a feel for this. Here they are, Mount Sinai. They're headed in this direction. Do you see what's around them? Even now? I mean, there's nothing. It's wilderness on both sides. Desert, wilderness, barren land. It's still like that. Okay, so they go there. May I? Yeah. So, where did they cross the Red Sea at? Well, this. We don't call this the Red Sea anymore because we're more specific, but this was all Red Sea. Even this here was Red Sea. So, I don't. I don't think they crossed at a really wide, you know, 50 mile, 30 mile wide part. Um, I don't, nobody knows. It could have been here, could have been here. Yeah, I think that whole thing was known as the Red Sea. Okay, so wilderness on both sides. There aren't cities there or even villages either, even today. It's wilderness. Water, food, scarce. They have the cloud, they have the pillar of fire, and they have God's promise. So they're moving north, they're trusting God, at least for three days. We'll get to that in a second. Um, just so you understand the scale, from Mount Sinai up to Jerusalem is only 300 miles. It's not a, this is not a huge area. 
I'm not saying they understood exactly where they were headed, but this, again, it wasn't supposed to be a 40-year thing. They were, they were heading north, and I think they, to a large extent, understood what God was doing. He was taking them to the promised land. So they're, they're headed there. Their actual destination is, we think, right about here. Kadesh Barnea, if you can read my handwriting. Okay, so they're headed all the way there. This is a very, very significant place in scripture. We're hearing about it for the first time here in Numbers. So they're they're only needing to travel about as far as they've already traveled from Egypt to Mount Sinai. It's about the same distance. So no problem, right? They're, they're, they have God's promises, all of that. But three days into it, they start um, grumbling, complaining, murdering. These people are prone to murder, murmuring and disobedience. So they lose their spirit, they begin grumbling, they forget about the hardships in Egypt and their minds wander back to the good memories, but it's not accurate. You know, they're thinking about the food. They probably weren't eating that food all the time. They were working hard as slaves, and, but they're thinking about the garlic and the fish and the, the leeks. I don't know, How, raise your hand if you love leeks. They wanted the leeks, okay? They wanted to go back there. So they're grumbling to Moses. They're grumbling to God. Right now they're, they're hungry, they're hungry, they're thirsty. They're thinking about food. They remember the savory food, but they forget the slavery. So God sends a message very quickly. He sends fire. It says fire consumed the outskirts of the camp. Okay. Fire consumed the outskirts of the camp. Lots of people died and that was followed by a plague. We know from Deuteronomy that this journey should have taken 11 days, but instead it took a month. And then they arrive at Kadesh Barnea. This is what ultimately becomes the border, the southern border of the promised land. Even now, the, the border for Israel, even though this is, this is still all wilderness here, to this day there's not a lot of Israeli stuff going on down here. But from what we know from Scripture, the modern-day border of Israel is roughly equivalent to what was the Promised Land. Okay, so this is a pretty good reference point. Kadesh Barnea is right on that border. All of the towns and villages are further north but they are on the edge of the promised land. After hundreds of years of this covenant being in place, they are right there. This is a, a very, very significant place. So from here, Moses sends the spies, okay? Israel camps out here. They set up the tabernacle. They do all their stuff. They're setting this up as a place of worship. And then Moses sends the spies that direction. I don't know how far they went. Well, I mean, we do. We know, we know they, they, 
they moved around for six weeks and we know some of the areas where they were, but I don't know how extensively they traveled, but it was, they were there for six weeks, walking through the land. Then they come back to Kadesh Barnea with their report. The report is mixed, but it's certainly not good or optimistic. And this tests the faith and confidence of all of the Israelites. The report says that the land is great, it's fair, it's beautiful, milk and honey. It's much better than the barren wilderness where they've spent the last year. Okay, so they were longing for the good things of Egypt, forgetting about the slavery in Egypt, and now the report comes back and says, yeah, this, this would be a great place to live. But there are walled cities and lots of people. Some of them are giants. So it looks great, except for that small problem. And the majority of the spies thought that taking the land was impossible because of the size and the strength of the people who occupied it. These were walled, some of these were walled cities, fortified cities. Okay. Um, two spies, though, Caleb and Joshua, saw that, but they also saw God. They were realistic about the challenges, but they voted to trust God and move in. Moses and Aaron join Caleb and Joshua in that, and they appeal to the people. Joshua says, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. This is perhaps the greatest turning point in the history of Israel. Right here at Kadesh Barnea. So let that name sink in. As you move on to other modules, you're going to, as you move through scripture, you're going to hear more about Kadesh Barnea. God uses it throughout the history of Israel to remind them of things, and it's a turning point. Kadesh Barnea is a turning point, certainly in their lives, but for all of Israel. It's huge. So they have God's promise. They have the, their own personal experiences of deliverance. They know his provision. They're right on the border of the promised land, but they don't go. They fail this test of faith and it's a, a tragic failure. The 10 spies went out, Caleb and Joshua are in the minority, and they don't do it, they don't go. I, I don't think I can say it any better than God here in these verses. I'm going to read a passage from Numbers 14, starting in 20, verse 29. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number for 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, you know, they're afraid to go in for the sake of their children, your little ones who you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. Turning point. They were, this journey had purpose, right? They were going to Mount Sinai to get the law. This journey had purpose. They were going to be right on the edge, and then they were going to go in and, and take the land. But now God says, no, 40 years, you'll wander around, and you'll die. Matt, where do you 
Numbers 14.29. This, by the way, I don't have time to dwell here, but I thought this would be helpful. This is what the Sinai area looks like. Okay, I'm looking around. Some of you have been to Israel. You were on the trip that I was in. We didn't go anywhere close to this, but this kind of looks like a lot of that area. So it's not a giant mountain. There aren't giant mountains there. In fact, when you, if you're in Jerusalem and you, the guide points, oh, there's Mount Zion. There's, you're like, well, these are these are hills, you know. So anyway, just. I think that sort of thing is interesting. That's the Sinai area. There's no way to know which mountain is Sinai. It's not like there's one big towering mountain that, that would tell us it's Sinai. Okay, so that, uh, if you look at your outline, I'm on section two now, okay, wilderness wandering. We don't really know much about the events during these years in the wilderness. We're given more directions, more laws, that sort of thing. We know there was more grumbling and complaining. We know God provided food for them all along the way. Um, but they, so Kadesh Barnea, instead of going north and taking the land like they're supposed to, I don't know, they started doing this sort of thing. But we, th- we think, I mean, I think we're quite certain that they remained in this area, all that wandering. I mean, maybe it was just a small area. I don't know how often they picked up and moved, but they were in that um, Sinai Peninsula area for 38 more years. Here in this section, uh, we don't know a lot, but we are told of the rebellion against Moses and Aaron, one led by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I I don't have the time to spend here, but it is fascinating. Basically, these guys complained against Moses and Aaron said, hey, there are a lot of other great leaders here. There are a lot of other holy people. What, what makes you guys so special? We can do some of what you're doing. Um, we think any number of us could do what, you, what you're doing. So there's that. Um, read it. It's fascinating. But then after 38 years of wandering, they return to Kadesh, right where they were before. So many, many people have died. Um, it's a hard life what they were doing, nomadic life, you know, they're eating the same thing. It was not pleasant at all. Um, so they return and again at this place, Kadesh Barnea, an event occurs that changes things forever, at least for Moses and Aaron. The people are desperate for water and again they criticize their leaders. Moses and Aaron petition the Lord, fall on their faces at the door of the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord does appear to them, and God told Moses, take a rod. This is significant. I'm hoping I have time to come back to this. He told Moses to take a rod, gather the assembly, and speak to the rock. It will produce water for the people, and take Aaron with you. Okay? Sound familiar? Down here, Moses was told to strike the rock. It'll bring water forth. Now, and this, I don't want, for me, again, all these stories always ran together in my head until, you know, a number of years ago. Water from the rock here, water from the rock here. This isn't just aimless wandering. These are two main trips that had a lot of significance, and they're bookended by water from the rock stories, okay? So this time, I said this sounds familiar, but this time there are differences. He was supposed to speak to the rock. 
not strike it, speak to the rock. Instead, he spoke harshly to the people. He was supposed to speak to the rock, but he spoke to the people, and he put the focus on himself and Aaron and then struck the rock twice. The rock did produce water. It produced a lot of water. It came out abundantly, and all the people and animals drank, but Moses had disobeyed the word of the Lord. He struck the rock as though it depended on human exertion and not upon the power of God alone. So this normally faithful servant of God, in fairness to Moses, he's worn out. He's leading these people all these years in the wilderness. But this this normally faithful servant of God stumbled and did not honor God before the people. The punishment for Moses and Aaron is they will not enter the promised land. So twice now, Momentous events happen at this spot, Kadesh Barnea. Twice, being just on the border of the promised land, God forbids entry. First he forbid entry to the whole group. Now he forbids entry to Moses and Aaron. So the Israelites from here, they move southeast to Mount Hor, which is right about here. Okay. So now they go from Kadesh to Mount Hor. Also not a long trip. Um, Here, Moses and Aaron and Aaron's son, Eliezer, they go up Mount Hor. And here the office of high priest passes from Aaron to his son Eleazar. So this is the first time that the office of high priest, and we know from Exodus that this was the plan, this is how it's going to happen, but this is the first transition. It's from Moses to Eleazar up on the mountain. Moses is there right after this ceremony for the transition, Aaron dies. They leave his body on the mountain and Moses and Eleazar come back. So now Eleazar is head priest, high priest, and the the people mourn for 30 days. After 30 days of mourning, they move south to Ezion Geber. Significant city, not at all like Kadesh Barnea. I hope this map is helpful to help us all understand where they're going, okay? (laughs) I love maps, so. Okay, so Kadesh Barnea, Mount Hor, the transition to Eleazar, now they're going more or less straight south. On the way south, complaining ensues again. You know, why have you brought us out here? This bread is worthless, we're all going to die. And they knew they were headed in the wrong direction. Again, this isn't all meaningless wandering. They go back to Kadesh Barnea. It's it's 38 years later, but they know what happened there before. They know they were on the verge of going into the promised land. And so now they're back there and they want to do it. But now they're heading south. They know it's the wrong direction. So they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're headed away from the promised land. Well, God sent fiery serpents. The serpents bit the people, poisonous serpents, venomous, and many of them died. Very quickly, they say, ah, we've sinned. Moses, please pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents. Moses prayed. God gave him a remedy that was quite unusual. 
A bronze serpent is to be made and erected in the center of camp with instruction, they, and the, it was on a pole. Bronze serpent was on a pole. God told them to do this, which is mind-boggling, I think. Um, make the bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it in the center of camp, and tell anyone bitten by a sta- snake to look at the bronze serpent, and they'd be healed. Just look at the bronze serpent, and, and you'll be healed. I mean, the bronze serpent was a graven image. The whole thing is, is mind-boggling. Okay, look at that bronze serpent. So there, it required faith on their part and obedience. They had to trust that this made sense, that it was God's plan, and they had to, they had to actually do it. Okay, this is the solution. So um, I have some application points to make on that, but let's just keep plowing through the, the outline here. Okay, this brings us to the third section, threshold of the promised land. This is where I made one of the major divisions in the book. You could, you could do it here. You could even do it here and say everything from the second Kadesh Barnea past is the third section. I don't know. This is where I put it. Um, and I did that because this is where they truly make a turn north and head toward the promised land. From this point forward, they're headed to the plains of Moab, right on the, on the edge, on the eastern edge. Um, and from here forward, they're victorious. You know, this, to me, in my mind, this seems like a turning point. They're conquering victorious people from here. Okay, now, I forgot to say earlier, when they were at Mount Hor, why didn't they just move this way because this is the land of Edom this whole area here is Edom and the Edomites forbid them from passing through they said no really we're just passing through we're not up to no good we're just let us pass through they said no so that's the reason for the southward trip to Ezion Geber this is um, Gibeon by the way down here Okay, so now, because they were not allowed to pass through Edom, they're going to go this way, around. And then this whole area is Moab. As they're making the the trip around Edom and north into Moab, they encounter a couple enemies. They've been wandering around the wilderness. You know, over here, they're not a threat to anyone. No one lives here. No, I mean, people live there, but there are no villages, no towns, no cities here. So as long as they're moving around here, nobody over here that's heavily populated cares. They know about them. They're things that indicate to us that the people here knew what was going on. I'm sure they thought it was very odd. Um, But hey, if these two million people want to wander around out there, no big deal. That didn't bother them. But as soon as they start making this trip, all the neighboring countries say, what's going on? These, we've seen signs from the God of Israel. We know what happened in Egypt. Um, So they're very, very nervous about it. Until then, they knew they were out there, but there was no conflict as long as they were in the desert. Now, though, they're doing something new. 
clearly headed somewhere. The neighbors don't like it, and they have uh, brief wars with Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. God's people defeat these enemies. Okay? So then they keep going. They get to the land of Moab. The Moabites, you may recall, are the descendants of Lot and his oldest daughter. These are the people now who occupy this area directly east of the Promised Land. The king of Moab, named Balak, is not pleased at all with their arrival. He doesn't want them there, just like the other kings. Okay, But he knows what happened to the other kings. They know how Sion and Og were defeated, so Balak takes a different approach. He hires a prophet, a non-Israelite prophet, but a prophet um, named Balaam, to curse the Israelites as they draw closer. Balaam doesn't do it, though. He blesses Israel instead. There's the talking donkey thing. Remember, if you think numbers is boring, you haven't read it. Talking donkey. Um, Balaam refuses to curse. I think he was open to it, but God spoke to him and said, don't do this. So Balak tries again, meets with Balaam. This isn't how it was supposed to go. I hired you to do this. Four times he ends up, he meaning Balaam, ends up blessing Israel rather than cursing. It ends, I don't at the end of the Balaam section, it, my translation just says, and Balak went his way. Like, just gave up. He tried four times. There's no real resolution to it. I think he just wasn't up for a fifth try. And so that, that ended. We've only scratched the surface of that story. Really, go back, read it, study it. It's, it's very interesting. Um, it's not all good stuff going on in Moab while they're there. The people commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Um, Numbers says that the people were joined to Baal of Peor by making sacrifices and bowing down. There are real failures that continue to happen among the people of Israel. So the anger of the Lord was kindled again, and 24,000 people died in a plague in Moab on the verge of entering the Promised Land. I mean, if we wrote the story, we'd say, oh, all the bad stuff happened here, right? And we learned our lesson right on the verge of the promised land. Everything will be great. No, they're still failing. They're still grumbling. They're still complaining. And now they're, they're bowing down to other gods, Baal in particular. Not good. So the book of Numbers ends with lots more laws, long lists of people, um, how the land and the plunder are to be divided when it happens. That stuff's all here. So that's why it's called numbers. I mean, there really are long lists of that sort of thing. Um, this is the people on the verge of the conquest of Canaan, though. Right now, they are. Next week, we'll study Deuteronomy. That's a little bit of a different book. But then in the last week of this module, we'll study Joshua, and that is... That picks up where Numbers leaves off, and they go in, and they, and they conquer the land. So here they are on the verge of the conquest. Hundreds of years after the promises to Abraham, they're almost there. They're almost home. I should also say, before, right before the section with the laws and all those other details, there is another census that's taken. Remember the census at the beginning of the book? It was a military census. How many men... Um, 20 and older are there. How many men can fight? Remember, that was because they were on their way to take the land. Now they're on their way to conquer the land again, so there's another census. And a new leader is appointed. 
Joshua is named to succeed Moses. Remember, Joshua was one of the spies who said we could do this. He was one of the only two adult males who, who lived to see this day. Um, Joshua is named to succeed Moses, and he will be the one to lead the nation into Canaan. That's the outline. That's stepping through the book. Any thoughts or questions? I didn't write it down. Yeah, I mean, it's recorded. It's recorded there. Okay. Yeah. So they, can I zoom in? I wonder if it'll, yeah, okay. Okay, so here's the Mediterranean and here the Red Sea's down below. So this is the Dead Sea. And then the, the Jordan River goes up from there to the Sea of Galilee. So they crossed, we think they crossed right about here. We know that because the first place they came to is Jericho, right? Or maybe not the very first, but the, and Jericho's right there. So that's where they crossed. Good question. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. There's just so much application here. We could spend weeks just on the application. There are so many types and shadows here in this book. Many of them are the same as the ones from Exodus, okay? So I won't spend a lot of time on those, but the same ones are here. The tabernacle, the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, manna, water from the rock happens again. Um, these are all significant types. In Exodus, they were, they were, they represented various things. In Leviticus, everything represented Jesus, I said. So now we have these same types and shadows here, but they're all here there's a little bit of a different sense. They're all tied together in the sense of provision from God. I think that's one of the major themes of numbers is provision from God. Okay, so all of these types and shadows, tabernacle, pillar, fire, manna, water from the rock, think provision from God. They're physical things that point us to Jesus but here they serve another purpose as well. They all point to Jesus, and he is the great presence of God and provision for his people. With the rest of the time we have, and I'm glad we have several minutes left, I want to go back to the Moses striking the rock. Remember, Moses in Exodus had been commanded to strike the rock down in the Sinai area, right? He had been commanded to strike the rock to bring forth water. Here in Numbers, though, he strikes the rock to bring forth water, and he's punished severely. So what's the difference? Well, of course, the command of God is different. First, he was told to strike the rock. Second, he was told to speak. So that's enough. I mean, that's, an, that's enough to say, okay, huge difference. He disobeyed. The punishment is just. But I think there's more. I think there are other significant differences between the stories. So the, the first difference is the command of God. Second, there are two different Hebrew words used for rock. The first rock, the rock down at Sinai, is a low-lying bedrock. Okay, you guys, 
kind of see where I'm headed with this. It's translated rock, and that's a fine translation. It is a rock, just like in English, we use the word rock to represent, you know, you could point to a mountain and, and call it a rock, it's a rock, but I can also pick up rocks. So um, it's a different Hebrew word in the two stories. The first one is bedrock. It's humble rock. It's strong, you know, foundational rock. The second rock is a, a high and exalted rock. Different word, altogether different word in Hebrew. Okay, so that's the second difference. Third, there are two different rods involved as well. Rods with which he struck the rocks. The first rod belonged to Moses. The second rod belonged to Aaron. The fourth difference is Moses takes Aaron to the second rock, and Aaron isn't even mentioned in the first rock story. Okay, so those are, those are some distinctions. Let's talk about what this could mean. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us the rock was Christ. So if we put on our New Testament glasses and we know that, you know, that's important. Remember, Paul tells us the rock was Christ. Christ is symbolized in both, on both occasions, but the first rock is a humble rock. It represents Christ as low and humble, smitten by God with the rod of Moses, which is the law. And it happened down here where the law was given. Okay? Moses' rod, near Mount Sinai, low, humble rock. The rock is Christ, but it's Christ smitten for us by God on account of the law. It's his death. By that, he supplies living water, spiritual life to his people. So that's the first one. The second one, though, that's the high and exalted rock when they're right on the verge of the promised land. And he's using Aaron's rod, not his own rod. So this is also Christ, but it's Christ as the exalted Savior, the great high priest in heaven. Aaron's rod, high priest, promised land. Okay, so this is also Christ, but it's him as the exalted Savior, the great high priest in heaven, seated on his throne and continually supplying living water of eternal life. He's not to be smitten twice. Moses struck the rock the second time. He disobeyed the voice of the Lord, he pointed to himself, saying, must we bring water from this rock? So it's a, the, the symbolism, the imagery is much, much different here. So it was a serious offense on many levels, both immediately, but also significant in what it portrayed. And for this offense, he could not enter the promised land, which also makes perfect sense because Moses representing the law and having offended God can't lead the people into the promised land. The law can never bring a sinner to heaven. Then, <coughs> this is another type, Moses was replaced by Joshua. Okay, Joshua will study in two weeks. He's the captain of the army. And the name Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the name Jesus. Okay, so obvious, obvious meaning there. My name in Spain and Latin America would be Mateo instead. Of, it's the same thing, Mateo, Matthew. Same thing, Joshua, Jesus, okay? 
So Moses was replaced by Joshua, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the name Jesus. Another type is the bronze serpent. Um, this is the only occasion I can think of where we're given a type of Jesus that's, is it fair to say, disturbing or offensive? A serpent. How can Jesus be a serpent? Jesus himself explained it in the Gospels, though he likened himself to the serpent raised up in the wilderness. The serpent from Genesis forward, Genesis to Revelation, is bad, evil. I mean, you guys know this. The serpent was in the garden tempting Adam and Eve to sin. In Revelation, the devil is referred to as that serpent of old. So this is very unpalatable. Obviously, there are points to be made here. Christ was lifted up on a cross. You guys all understand that. He was lifted up on a cross. The bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole. So, I mean, there's that. That's obvious. But consider this also. In the story here in Numbers, the people sin, right? They grumble, they complain. The people sin. The Lord sends punishment of the fiery serpents. The people repent and seek forgiveness. The Lord provides the means of healing, which requires faith and obedience. Faith to trust in the plan, obedience to look at it. This is Jesus in every way. It's not merely the being lifted up. So Jesus' self-identification in the Gospels, his self-identification with the serpent in the wilderness is very significant. He identifies himself with the solution to the problem of sin, right? That solution itself is related to the curse, the curse being sending the serpents in the, in the first place. Um, the solution is related to the curse. Um, Christ is identified with the sin, the curse, and the cure. So it's unpalatable. You know, it's strange to think about, but it's beautiful too. Um, and there's more going on than just the lifting up on the cross. All right, about out of time. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but the, remember Balaam made those four oracles blessing Israel. The fourth one, which I would read if we had time from Numbers 24, is all about Jesus. I mean, that fourth oracle is all about Jesus. So out of time, but what a strange and fascinating book, I think. It teaches us so much about unbelief, about God's provision, trusting him. Um, he leads his people out of bondage in Egypt with the promised land as the ultimate goal. It displays the unbelief and disobedience of Israel. But in the end, there's a new generation that follows Joshua and is prepared to enter the promised land. God takes care of them in the wilderness. He sustains them daily. He guides them throughout the book. He fights their battles. He defeats their enemies. This is the Christian life. The wandering here. We've been brought out of bondage, right? But we wander and we fail and our faith is mixed with unbelief and sin. But God brings us to the promised land. That's numbers. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.